Hello to my friends, old and new. Thanks for coming around to listen to the latest segment of my Story Share series. I adore curating these stories. Get out your best clothes, ready your toasting glass. It's time to watch the bride come down the aisle. Yes, our theme is weddings. Perfect for the month of June. I've got a couple of brilliant stories from talented writers. But first, my theme song. Welcome to Jackie Just Chatters. By sharing people's stories, I strive to generate laughter, inspiration, maybe help you escape from the stressful world. I am your hostess, Jackie Lentz, who's still figuring out her own story. This podcast comes out every other Thursday. I can be found wherever you get your podcast or on YouTube. I'd be most grateful if you left me some stars or a review and subscribe if you never want to miss an episode. Thank you for listening and sharing. Welcome back, friends. Most of us have gone to a wedding, or if you're like me, you've been to a lot of them. Maybe also like me, you've participated in your own. If you have, then I know you've got stories to tell. Often when we go to these events, our focus is on the bride and groom, which is understandable. But there is a network of people behind the scenes who help put the day together. For those folks, a wedding is just another day at the office. Don't forget, while we're looking out, they are looking in. Our first story comes from just such a person. She has lived many places, but Rochester, New York is where Amy Vale calls home. Many of her publications have been academic, but she has penned three articles in A Fan's Companion to Terry Pratchett. She also wrote a chapter of C.S. Lewis and Narnia for Dummies. How fun is that? She has a Facebook page full of stories and information. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of this page, but I'll leave a link for it in the episode notes. It's worth checking out. Let's get on to our story. Haste to the Wedding by Amy Vale For a well-trained soprano, who has finally found the best organist in the world to accompany her, a summer full of wedding gigs is an endless series of good times. Singing for a wedding has always made me as merry as a full peal of marriage bells. Happily, the late 1980s were a time when practically every bride who could afford it wanted a professional soprano for the big day. My organist partner and I made lots of money too. We did not limit ourselves to weddings, by the way. We enjoyed the occasional interment, too, for the money wasn't bad. That said, weddings are jolly times and tend to be brief, unless it's a full nuptial mass. Memorial services, by contrast, tend to go on forever, and they do run to the depressing, even if you have never met the guest of honor. Funerals never had extras, either. 
Nobody seemed to want a cocktail reception with light jazz, extra fee, after the graveside stuff is over. County Durham is not New Orleans, after all. That said, big events have a lot of backstage social life to them, and your average funeral director is far more amusing company than your average wedding photographer. We like the morticians we knew. Caterers, though? We're always the best fun of all. Organist partner and I particularly appreciated churches with choir lofts. He could wear his favorite shabby organ shoes, and I was spared the agony of stiletto heels. In an organ loft, nobody can see your feet. You get a fine view of the congregation's hats as well. During that long, uncomfortable waiting period before the service starts, we enjoyed rating hats on a scale of one. Wouldn't be caught dead in that. What was she thinking of? To ten. Must have gone all the way to Paris for it. We also assessed the clergy in attendance, awarding points for vestments, diction, and sometimes for the putative degree of drunkenness. Organist had a misanthropic streak. Often he would give a priest eight out of ten for tipsiness but I would perceive only a merry mood and a little stage fright. It was usually the wrong time of day for all but the most determined alcoholics, I would point out. Choir lofts were nicely private. Sometimes we could even share a furtive late breakfast while we were waiting for the services to get underway. We paid much attention to wedding dresses. Eventually, we evolved the bride theorem. Brights come in only two basic varieties, wedding cake and ballerina. Practically all brides were either monumental ice cakes or refugees from the Bolshoi. Occasionally, though, we would spot a rare and beautiful fairy queen. Someone who managed to carry off both looks simultaneously. A fairy queen always had a train. Once, she had a great big whacking tiara. We also invented a game we called Spot the Granny. Grandmothers were identifiable by their plumage. If there was a really consequential hat in the congregation, nine times out of ten, it was being sported by the groom's grandmother. Organist partner and I never made a lot of effort to publicize ourselves. Word of mouth seemed to suffice. Certainly, in June and July, we had more than enough weddings, and during the rest of the year, we were both trying to write dissertations. We did sit down and write a list of popular pieces we were prepared to perform. Franck's Panis Angelicus topped the list. Everyone seemed to like it, even if they didn't know the words or the composer. The Schubert Ave Maria was another breadwinner, also useful for funerals. You can sing Ave Maria for any ecclesiastical event whatsoever, it turned out. It's like plain black shoes. It goes with everything. Familiarity does breed contempt, though. Organist partner despised the piece, and after a while, I grew tired of it as well. Occasionally, some adventurous bride had the guts to choose the Bach Gunad Ave Maria. But even that one grows stale after three or four Saturday weddings. We did make a nice little cassette of greatest hits, 
including four different Ave Maria settings. Nobody ever chose the Verde. This was a disappointment, but given the context, perhaps not surprising. At the best weddings, we attended the reception. Organist would magically transform himself into George Shearing, and I would slip into my exquisite tortured shoes and crude jazz standards, sometimes even wearing my red feather boa. Cocktail jazz was always a welcome treat. After too much Ave Maria for me and too much Widor Takata gives me carpal tunnel. I hate it for organist. Best of all, kindly caterers would often give us leftover cold poached salmon, a few baguettes, and a couple bottles of sparkling whatever. We never said no. When I finally got married myself, decades later, I was forced to confront the fact that you simply cannot be the soprano soloist for your own wedding. It's just not done. My wonderful sister offered to pay for a professional, but something in me did not like the idea. I fear it might have been an ignoble subconscious wish not to be upstaged by a rival. Instead, my own church choir, familiar and beloved, showed up and sang their hearts out. So did a few local singer friends who came to sing in the choir. The congregation sang like angels. So did I. And so did my groom. And so did all three priests. If any occasion is right for a joyful noise, it's a wedding. Make those rafters ring. Here is a short clip of Amy singing at a concert. Sorry the audio is not studio quality, but she was on stage and it's the best we got, so we'll deal. Imagine yourself in the church. You're a guest and waiting for everything to start. This is when you are checking everyone else out. Then somebody grabs everyone's attention. And silence falls. <coughs> it is showtime. The music changes. The dreamy image in white comes down the aisle, and the groom is dumbstruck. At least, that is how we hope it goes. Most of the time, we never know what is really going on behind the scenes. Our next writer gives us an inside peek behind the curtain of her wedding day. What really was happening? Some joyful, some stressful, but all entertaining. Our next piece comes from Sharon Walker, a British expat who lives in La Spezia in northern Italy. 
Doesn't that sound romantic? In her day job, she is a British linguistics consultant and translator. Her secret identity is that of author S.M. Walker, who has published two collections of short stories, The Wife in the Wardrobe and The Perfect Fig. Both are available on Amazon. Let's join our author as she takes us back to her wedding experience. Joan of Arc Came to My Wedding by S.M. Walker My white silk and lace dress, short veil, and gloves fit perfectly. I don't remember feeling like a princess. It was more of an out-of-body experience. From somewhere up above, I watched myself get out of the car and bump my head, dislodging my hand-stitched veil. The crowd of guests stood around the car in an eerie circle reminiscent of scenes from the horror film Rosemary's Baby. That was my one and only moment of doubt. The instant in which I thought of hitching up my tulle underskirts, leaping into the now-parked-up Jaguar, and running off into the midday sun. I should have done it. Or should I? It's so tempting to rewrite history when a marriage doesn't work out. For a long time, I remember that day as the most awful of my life. I felt bitter and hurt. But writing this piece, I started to realize that my wedding day was actually a great day. The sun shone. The sea sparkled silver through the olive groves. The guests laughed. My father was proud. My husband looked handsome. I was happy. I was marrying my Italian fiancé in Italy, surrounded by friends and family, many of whom had come over from the UK, and I was excited for what was to come. I was a young and eager girl, full of hope. My brother Jack stepped forward, smiling under his mustache, and adjusted my veil. My wedding dress had been handmade by my husband's Aunt Laura, a tiny woman with a heart of gold who always fed the stray cats near her home. She had retired from making bridal gowns, but sprung into action enthusiastically to reproduce the dress I had found in a magazine, with a few amendments, some asked for and others unexpected. I did not mind. Am I the only woman who did not spend her childhood days dreaming of her wedding day? The only girl who never wanted a knight in shining armor? I grew up with my dad and three older brothers. I knew how to play cricket and how to box. I could put up a tent, but I couldn't skip or do a handstand. I wasn't scared of spiders, and I could, and did, climb trees. In my Sunday best dress, I was more likely to get into a rotten apple fight with the children next door than sit silent and ladylike. My husband always said, Me and you against the world. And I thought it was strange almost paranoid. Then I started to feel safe and comfortable. I wasn't interested in the wedding day itself. I just wanted to be married, to be a couple, to be us, two people setting out on a beautiful journey together. Call me sentimental, call me naive. I really believed when I stepped into that gleaming black vintage Jaguar with my father that morning that I was about to marry the love of my life. It would be him and me, together, united against whatever the world could throw at us, forever. 
on the 29th of August, 1994, in a little church on a hill in a fishing village in northern Italy, I said, I do, in front of a host of Italian and English guests. A priest with a broken arm, he had fallen off his bicycle, a blind organ player, and Joan of Arc. It was just one day in a life so far of around 20,000 days, yet I find it such a difficult day to talk about. Veil in place, skirts rearranged, I was suddenly aware of my mother by my side. She was wearing a huge yellow hat, a yellow dress, and a sweet smile. My mother was a beautiful woman, much prettier than the bride my new mother-in-law had pronounced upon seeing our wedding photos. You look beautiful, Mum whispered as she joined the other guests who were now entering the church. All the Italian women were chic in short designer dresses and sunglasses. All the English women wore hats and confused expressions. There had been no rehearsals. We didn't have a clue of what was happening. And, of course, there was the language barrier. As I waited outside the church with my father... My brother-in-law-to-be came running out to tell me that my sister and friend, my witnesses as bridesmaids, are not usual in Italy, couldn't understand his English, and didn't know what to do. I was blissfully undisturbed by this, as I was still watching the whole scene unfold from somewhere up above. My father and I stood outside waiting for some kind of sign that we should enter. Despite the hot sun, it had began to drizzle a little. In Italy, there is a saying... Sposa bagnata, sposa fortunata. A wet bride is a lucky bride. The rain stopped immediately and the sun came back out. I was dry. Which side should I be on, Dad? I asked. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You've given away my older sister. Which side were you on? I don't remember. We had a 50-50 chance of getting it right. We got it wrong. Dad seemed more nervous than I was. He had been so proud sitting in the back of the car on the way to the church. I feel blessed that I had him there on my wedding day. I always was a daddy's girl. We had laughed together when two little boys had tried to ride alongside the car on their bicycles shouting, Viva la sposa! Long live the bride. I took my father's arm, my other hand clutching a bizarre bouquet. It should have consisted of delicate white roses and sprigs of greenery. Instead, it had been delivered that morning with splashes of large red carnations in it. The red flowers should have been given to the men as buttonholes, something which doesn't seem to be used in Italy. There had obviously been a breakdown in communications. I have since learned that red and white flowers together signify death, symbolizing blood and bandages. Not the most auspicious of beginnings. As the blind organ player struck the first chords of something I had not chosen and did not recognize, we began our walk down the aisle. My father, as can be clearly seen on the wedding video, was almost running. Such was his enthusiasm to give me away. Slow down, Dad, I hissed through my bridal smile. As my eyes adjusted from the bright summer sunlight to the dark interior of the church, the first thing that they beheld was not my husband-to-be, but a three-meter-high paper-mache statue of Joan of Arc in a suit of armor. 
the banner-waving Joan had been brought to the church the previous day for the celebrations of St. John and St. Joan, and for some unknown reason, was still there. The surprise was enough to wake me from my state of levitation and return me to my body with a jolt. I looked beyond Joan to my waiting husband, expecting to find him overcome and tearful at the sight of me, his bride, resplendent in my wedding gown. Instead, cleanly shaven and dressed in Armani, he looked very young and very frightened. At least the guests were all smiling. We reached the front of the church, and not knowing what to do with my flowers, I turned and handed them to my sister. The alarmed priest came bounding down the altar steps and snatched them back with his good arm, placing them on a little table between him and us. The altar cloth he had carefully draped over his plaster cast gave him the air of a silver-service waiter. Behind me, I'm sure I heard my sister suppress a giggle. Smiling, I turned to my groom. He was not impressed. The service went by in a haze of jokes, which I unsuccessfully translated for the English-speaking guests. Some thoughtful words and readings from the priest, again unchosen, and finally the kiss. The kiss? Of course, all ceremonies end with a kiss. My husband had assured me that ours would not. It sounds silly now, but at the time, I felt embarrassed by such an open display of intimacy. I wonder why he told me we would not have to kiss in front of everyone. So we turned to face each other. I felt irritated by his mistake. He looked surprised. We gave each other the kind of kiss that resident children give to prickly-chinned relatives. The wedding guests applauded. Outside the church, finally hand in hand, united for just a moment, we were showered with rice. Painful, but apparently necessary for future fertility. The priest asked the guest not to throw it too near the church as he couldn't sweep it up with one arm. My husband seemed happy, but then the scowl returned. All through the day, the wedding photographer, my husband's cousin, we were lucky to have so many relatives in the wedding industry, could be heard saying, Smile, Marco, smile! And as the day progressed, the wedding guests joined in too. Smile, Marco, smile! At the restaurant, I removed my veil. My mother-in-law had sprayed so much Elnet hairspray in my hair that it stayed in place not just for the wedding feast, but for the following three days. I had tried protesting, but she had ignored me. Slim but formidable, my mother-in-law was not a woman to take no for an answer. During the Nazi occupation of Italy, her father had been a maréchalo in the military police. He was caught helping the partisans by warning families when the soldiers were coming for them. Dismissed from his post and arrested, he had escaped and hid in the woods until the war was over. My mother-in-law, then a young girl, had taken him food and kicked the Nazi soldiers' boots when they had come to her house. She had my full respect. Confusion reigned at the restaurant as well. I'm not sure how they had coped when we went off towards the sea to have our photographs taken, but everyone was smiling when we arrived. The 15-course meal was perfection on various plates as tends to be the case in Italy. So much for the bride being unable to eat on her wedding day. And then came the cake. 
I'd seen films where couples tried out various flavors of wedding cake before deciding upon red velvet, vanilla, salted caramel. I don't know. We were not given a choice. We got what we were given. A cake. A large two-layer round white cake with bizarre blue and pink flowers on it. More suitable for a christening than a wedding. To be fair, beneath the ugly plastic bride and groom, reminiscent of the 1970s, the sponge cake was light and delicious. As my husband and I stood on a platform wielding a large knife over the blue and pink monstrosity, my mother-in-law suddenly leapt up and grabbed me by the shoulders. Once my posture had been satisfactorily adjusted, we cut the most hideous cake I have ever seen, and champagne glasses were raised to the happy-ish couple. As a girl, I may not have dreamed of my wedding day, but I know now how I wanted it. There should have been joy and tenderness. There should have been speeches where people we loved told us how much they loved us. I should have worn a white cotton dress and jeweled sandals and danced on the beach with my father. But it's not the wedding day that's important. It's the marriage. Mine was over while I waited patiently for it to begin. I don't know whether that is better than to have an amazing marriage and then lose the one you love. I'll never know. I'll never get married again. Ever. But I can say now that my wedding was the best one I've ever been to. And nobody can take away my memories. Thank you, ladies, for sharing your wonderful stories with us. Both were thoughtful and amusing. I felt I couldn't sign off without sharing a wedding story of my own. This coming October, I will celebrate my 20th anniversary, and I'd marry him again in a heartbeat. On that autumn day when we said I do, it was also the same day of the infamous annual football game between Michigan State University, my alma mater, and the University of Michigan, where my husband attended for two years. This game is legendary in Michigan, and the mostly friendly rivalry is much celebrated. I couldn't let the day pass without acknowledging the game. Coordinating with a friend, MSU flags were secretly handed out to all the alumni in the hall, and we had a sizable showing, I have to say. During dinner, Suddenly, our fight song blared over the speakers, and voices joined in from all corners. I have an adorable photo of my husband laughing, with his head in his hands. And next to him is his new bride waving her flag, singing along as bold as you please. He took the joke like a champ. That's why we're still married nearly 20 years later. He has a great sense of humor. I hope you find plenty to laugh about in your days coming ahead. A shout out to my listeners in Pennsylvania. Thanks for hanging with me. 
I hope all of you come back in two weeks for my next episode. Until then, I wish you well.